You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. In this season, and in celebration of the release of my new book, The Failures of Forgiveness, which will be released this September by Princeton University Press, I talk to people who have challenged my thinking about what forgiveness is, its limits, and its powers. If you are wondering how to deal with conflict, relationships, or just how to rebuild and repair your world, then this season is for you. In this episode, I talk with Catherine Nurlock, who is a professor of philosophy at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, and the Kenneth Mark Drain Chair in Ethics. We talk about self-forgiveness, regret, remorse, and so much more. Hello, Kate, and welcome to the Yummy Podcast. How are you today? I am fabulous. How are you, Maisha? I'm happy because I get to talk to you. So, you know, that's a Kate day is a great day. (laughs) By the way, a Kate day is a great day. I am telling everyone this and I am making t-shirts. Now, here's here's the thing. After over 50, 60 something episodes, um, you are our first reappearing guest. And so usually we start the podcast off with asking how did you get interested in philosophy since you are the first reappearing guest i'm gonna i'm gonna remix that question and i'm gonna ask how do you stay interested in philosophy i can start answering that by telling you i had a one-word answer ready since you've asked me how i got interested in philosophy before i gave a long answer and this time (laughs) i was just gonna say belatedly that's how i got interested in uh but yeah because i got interested in philosophy belatedly I feel like I got a late start and there's so much to see and find out. So the way I stay interested is I just don't stay in one place. I get the impression from other people I've met in the discipline that um, we're in it earlier. We're uh, deeply invested in being in the discipline a particular way, being a particular sort of specialist, that they are a little more you know, married to their specialization. But I think it's kind of liberating that because I didn't start doing this until my mid-20s, I felt like I don't ever have to do this or any one thing. So I just keep changing topics as the mood strikes me, which means I I never feel quite like I have enough under my belt. I feel like I'm constantly redoing a lit review. (laughs) But it's never boring if you just follow your feelings and go where your interests take you. You don't have to keep doing something if you no longer love it. So I don't. I like that. I like that. So so in, in my book, Failures of Forgiveness, uh, the last chapter of the book, I well, I guess to say second to the last chapter of the book, I talk about self-forgiveness. And as I was telling you before we, we, we pressed the record button, um, most of, of what I learned about self-forgiveness comes from you. And oh, so in thinking about this podcast, I was like, okay, I need to share straight from the horse's mouth. People need to hear uh, what Catherine Erlock has to say about, about self-forgiveness. So I'm looking forward to this, to this conversation. And also, um, it'll allow me to know if I, if I read you right, although it's too late. <laughs> so if, I, if, I, if I read you wrong, then I'm just wrong in that chapter. Um, she did not but, check but, with me, people. 
but we're gonna we're gonna go to this list. Although I, 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 you know, I think I have something you know novel to say in that chapter. I, I did want to talk to you because um, I consider you an expert on this on, on self forgiveness, and, and self forgiveness was a chapter in, in your book. So let, let's talk about it. So how would you how would you define self forgiveness, and how is it different from forgiving others? As always, I'm going to give you both a broad and then a specific definition. So broadly. Okay. I, broadly, I define self-forgiveness as a commitment to live with oneself and one's memories of one's own wrongdoings less punishingly. I was going to say less punitively, but I don't know. When I first got to this field, punitive was never as good as punishing. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a commitment to live with yourself less punishingly. And I have a specific definition too, because I can, I can say more words and, uh, Like specifically, I would say for my philosophy friends that self-forgiveness is a moral practice that has to include, at a minimum, a willingness to release yourself from the maximum fullness of self-blame. And what you read in my book was, I think it also has to include a commitment to re-release yourself from it again in the future. Hmm. And if you're lucky you don't have to live up to that commitment because it won't keep recurring in your head. But most of us are not that lucky. Like most of us will keep um, finding that memories of our past wrongs recur. And that is sad. Uh, hey, and you asked me if there was a big difference between self and forgiveness and forgiveness of others. Mm-hmm. And when I first uh, thought about that, I thought, no, there's not a big difference. And now I think, no, no, there is one key big difference. And that is, um, I think, Self-forgiveness almost always entails um, reconciling with yourself. So in the philosophy literature, we usually distinguish between forgiveness and reconciliation, especially since um, many people are willing to consider forgiving somebody if they don't have to reconcile with them and, you know, treat with them again in the future and put up with them year in and year out. So, yeah, if you can think of forgiveness as separate from reconciliation, There are a lot of ways to forgive other people um, silently or aloud or in your heart or in a speech act without having to live out a life of reconciliation with them. But there aren't many ways to do self-forgiveness that don't require reconciling with yourself too, like pledging to live with yourself in a better way. And, you know, some people don't succeed. I mean, a um, a lot of what I read about suicide includes being unable to live with oneself for a variety of reasons. So I think sometimes you just can't live up to that commitment, but I do think self-forgiveness is going to require some reconciliation. So let's talk about uh, a term you use in your book called the fragmented self, or I should say fragmented self. So I want you to tell us a little bit about what is fragmented self or fragmented selves and what do it has to do with forgiveness or self-forgiveness in particular? I'm very glad you asked because it allows me to plug somebody who was a huge influence on my work and that chapter you read. Uh, And that's Susan Bryson. And Susan Bryson, who's at Dartmouth, wrote a book called Aftermath, which was a huge influence on me. I teach it every year of my life for the last 20 years. And uh, what Susan Bryson said in Aftermath was that her experience with trauma and traumatic memory convinced her that the unitary self is an illusion. And she says it in just that many words. The the unitary self is an illusion. There is no single, egoistic, rational, 
unified self, like this one thing we are over time. And one of the reasons she found that to be illusory, and one of the reasons she said, I'm, I'm going to agree with Parfit, at a minimum, we're a series of successive selves, right? And she, she even went beyond that. She said, I think in real, not just psychological, but metaphysical ways, we are a multiplicity of selves. Um, there are multiple aspects to what we take to be the person we are. And ultimately, like when you describe yourself as a person you are, you're sort of offering people a coherent narrative about something that's not really that coherent. So Susan Bryson's point is that traumatic memory makes it obvious that we're not really a unified, simple self because traumatic memories are intrusive. They recur. Uh, many people who have the experience of post-traumatic stress disorder describe it as like time travel, right? It really bops you back and forth. Once you embrace the possibility that we are, at a minimum, our past, present, and future selves, and that maybe even in every present, we're more than one person, we're more than one thing, then it becomes easier to see why a fragmented self would be a lot more useful to talking about self-forgiveness. Because you are forgiving your wrongdoer self, you are... Um, maintaining a dialogue with yourself. You're making promises to yourself that a future self might hold you to or be disappointed that you didn't keep. So that's why I like the fragmented self. It really helped me to make sense of what self-forgiveness is and who's doing it. So, you know, this may be kind of a, a philosopher's kind of quirk, but we, we, in the sense that people may say that we ask questions that needn't be asked, or we try to find problems where there aren't any problems. Um, but in philosophy, I mean, there seems to be questions ar around the possibility of self-forgiveness. And oh, yes. I, I want you to tell us why this is even a question from the beginning. And, and what is your response to it? I mean, it depends on which kind of self-forgiveness we're talking about. And when I started doing this, when I started even thinking and writing about self-forgiveness, I was interested in self-forgiveness for wrongs you do to yourself, like self-forgiveness when you're both the victim and the wrongdoer. And uh, if you're a fragmented self, that's, that's obviously true, right? Um, and right away, I ran into a little literature that said, but that's silly, right? You can't like owe yourself an apology or really wrong yourself because um, if you're a skeptic that we are anything but these unified, rational, egoistic, single selves, then uh, there's no way to wrong yourself. You're the same person. And there's definitely no way to make amends to yourself. And I remember my advisor quoting um, Thomas Hobbes and Marcus Singer, uh, great philosophers who said, you know, if, if you had duties to yourself, you could just release yourself from wrongs you do to yourself. And that's nonsense. And I thought that doesn't sound like nonsense. I, I, I would love to be able to release myself and I can't. So if the skeptic response to self-forgiveness for wrongs you do to yourself is, you can't wrong yourself. You can't make amends to yourself. I want to say, well, you are overly married to a unified conception of the self. Hmm. You know, I think, I think the very fact that we struggle to release ourselves means that we can definitely wrong ourselves and really feel disappointed in ourselves for letting our past selves down, setting our future selves up for failure. And if you harm someone else, it's a different skepticism, right? If you if you are the wrongdoer to someone else, someone else is your victim, then I see more often people raise 
ethical concerns. Now it's not like some metaphysical, are you the same person? It's the ethical concern that if you forgive yourself for something you did to somebody else, you are a colossal jerk. Only the victim mm -hmm. can forgive. Um, so you can't forgive yourself for something you did to them. And if anything, you're probably going to think that you're off the hook now when that's up to them and not to you. So I appreciate that ethical response. I think that has a lot more weight. I think there are reasons to forgive yourself even when someone else is the victim, but I, I understand the ethical objection far better. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about those two different domains, forgiving yourself for harms done to others and harms done to yourself. And I wonder if you can just explain a little bit more what you might find the significant differences, um, but also perhaps similarities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those similarities are important to me because whether it's a harm to yourself or harm to someone else, I do find myself thinking in both those cases, the reason self-forgiveness comes up is because you're doing something like self-blame or self-reproach. So the big similarity is those intrusive recurrent memories of what you did. And to me, that's everything. It's involuntary. It's uncontrolled. And that's the nature of living with the bodies we've got, right? Memories are involuntary and uncontrolled and reproach and self-blame are very challenging to live. It's challenging to live with the fact that you'll never know if it's going to recur. You just can't know that. So that's the big similarity. I do see big differences too. Um, if you're the wrongdoer to others and you're not the victim, then how to practice self-forgiveness comes with many more moral risks. And the moral risks are kind of horrifying. You could, you could fail the victim by not checking in with them as to how they are. Um, you could, if you express your self-forgiveness to others, you could really outrage witnesses. You could really damage your relationships with them. Uh, you could fail to think about what we owe to others because you're overly focused on yourself. And there are so many others when you harm someone else. And, you know, I don't even know how you, how you avoid those moral risks because, um, how to do forgiveness depends on how you talk to other people. I can talk to myself at will. I can carry on conversations with myself and sort of try to make promises and um, fix new commitments to the future. But when it comes to talking to other people, that's really fraught. So I think the big difference is how to practice self-forgiveness when somebody else is the victim, how to do third-party forgiveness excellently. And I think it's never going to be perfect. It's only ever going to be something short of everything good that could happen. Are there any risks with forgiving yourself for harms done to yourself? So you, you kind of highlighted, you know, the, the, the other option comes with a little bit more, more, more risks. But I wonder if you can talk about the risks that comes with, with forgiving yourself for harms done to yourself. If forgiveness, uh, if self-forgiveness is a commitment to being willing to keep releasing yourself in the future, then I don't see a lot of risk because, and I I'm, I'm, should add for listeners, most philosophers don't define forgiveness in this sort of commitment sense, this sort of promissory sense. I'm really big on seeing forgiveness as a commitment to re-releasing again in the future because, because 
you don't just forgive yourself or really anyone just once, right? Like I said, memories recur. And so I think when I look at forgiveness as a commitment, it does come with these beautiful opportunities to decide whether or not to renew the commitment. I like that a lot. So I don't see as much risk to forgiving yourself for wrongs you do to yourself. Because you can, every time that memory recurs, every time you feel self-reproach or self-blame all over again, you can revisit the commitment, decide. Um, am I right to forgive myself at this point? Have I done enough to become a better person, to make amends, to um, get clear on what it is I did wrong in the first place? Like you can revisit that commitment, decide, you know, I'm not renewing that commitment at this time. I'm, I'm going to double back and start doing more work on self-perception, self-blame, self-understanding before I do self-forgiveness again. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking about a person who, let's just say the case that they tried to make amends with someone. Um, however, the victim either cannot forgive them now or refuses to forgive them. Oh, yeah. And, you know, one might say, so, you know, I, I apologize. I've, I've even begun to change my behavior. I mean, one might say, well, do I need permission um, or even first steps from the victim in order to forgive myself? And, and what would you say? What would you say to that, to that wrongdoer? Like when does, is, is self-forgiveness cut off? Is it contingent or is it dependent um, on, on, on the victim? Or are there other things that, that is a prerequisite to it? What do you, what do you say? Yeah, that's a great question. I love it. And I don't think it's cut off because I think there are multiple relationships going on here. And I think um, how you're going to live with yourself is a separate relationship from how you're going to proceed into the future with that victim, right? So I don't think, I don't think the refusal of the other to forgive you prevents you from forgiving yourself. You, you've got a lot of relationships to work on, <laughs> and they include the relationship with your future selves and your present self and your past self. So I want to say no, that uh, especially if our victim is being unfair, unkind, if they are interested in extracting more than we deserve to have extracted. You know, if we did a, what most of us would think is a very minor wrong, and they keep insisting it's a very major wrong to an extent that you'll never understand, uh, then you, you really can't wait on them to forgive you for something that you think is should have been forgiven by now. So I want to reserve the possibility that your victim could be wrong <laughs> about whether or not you deserve forgiveness and whether or not they will be forgiving you. I'm fine with that. And I, I wouldn't know exactly when that would be. I just think right, it's possible, right. right? So yeah, in that case, um, I have noticed, of course, in my own life, what psychologists have demonstrated more empirically, which is if my uh, victim does forgive me, it's a lot easier to forgive myself. Right, right. And that's been demonstrated too, that the forgiveness of victims really does facilitate self-forgiveness, which is fantastic. I can first forgive myself a lot faster if I think, oh Lord, what I did was really terrible. And someone tells me, no, it wasn't as terrible as you think. And I've already thought about it. I've already forgiven you. It's going to be good. I think, oh, thank God. And I forget it so much faster. <laughs> so yeah, I think the forgiveness of another will facilitate self-forgiveness. But I don't think it can always prevent it. And I don't think it should always prevent it. And one of the best things uh, that I thought Claudia Carr had said about forgiveness when she wrote The Atrocity Paradigm is that you might need to forgive yourself 
just to see yourself as, as capable, as worth the forgiveness of others. So sometimes you should forgive yourself before people forgive you so that you sort of re-empower yourself to be someone who is responsible and responsive, not just curled up in shame. So you've, you've mentioned early on about reconciliation and particularly with forgiving yourself. It seems like reconciliation is part of that, part of that picture. But we also know that in the literature, one of the things that we try to do is to suggest, or at least some of us try to do, is suggest that, that reconciliation is more than one thing. It's not one thing. It, it can be take many faces. And, and I wonder if you can just say a, li- a little bit more about what are, are the, do you think there's different versions or I should say different varieties or different ways to reconcile with oneself when one forgives oneself? That's a hard question. I like it. Why don't you ask easy questions? Uh, <laughs> because let me, let me just tell you the motivation behind it, right? So sure do. one might say, well, to forgive yourself means um, you know, you, you want to reconcile with yourself. And part of that reconciliation is you use the example prior is like suicide, for example. So I'm not going to kill myself, but it doesn't mean that I've, I've reconciled with myself in another respect. No. Right. And so I, I just wonder if you could think with us through reconciliation and self-forgiveness. Good. Yeah, I would love to. I've, I've always hesitated to write about reconciliation because it seems I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it really does seem harder. Right. <laughs> uh, right. Reconciliation seems harder than forgiveness because forgiveness, you could sequester to promises you make, attitudes you take, you know, feelings you have. But reconciliation sounds so much more behavioral and active. It sounds like a series of processes that you have to engage in. And I think we are often very bad at living up to those real behaviors and processes that say, not only am I committed to doing this, I'm actually doing this, right? Not only am I uh, committed to not being so punishing of myself in the future, I'm actually not punishing myself in the future. And sadly, I think for a lot of us, we think the right things, we make the right promises to ourselves, but we do in our habits and practices not act like we've done it. So I can imagine someone committing to self-forgiveness, but continuing to punish themselves in a variety of ways, Uh, continuing to put themselves in the position of remembering what they did wrong, continuing to harm themselves in real ways. Like I'm thinking of palpable ways, including eating disorder, including physical self-harm, including even burdening oneself as a way of making it up to the world working too hard, giving too much to others, um, leaving less time for yourself in real ways that exhibit a sort of subconscious belief that you don't deserve more. So I worry about, I worry about the ways we can fail to reconcile even when we make all the right pledges to ourselves to self-forgive. What do you think are the benefits to forgiving oneself? I think to talk about the benefits, I have to quote another philosopher and I'll keep it brief, but Robin Dillon comes up in my chapter on self-forgiveness because she's got this beautiful account of what she called preservative self-forgiveness. And preservative self-forgiveness is this very forward-looking notion that says you you are prepared in advance to forgive yourself again in the future if you do something else wrong, something new wrong, right? And so her analogy when she talks about preservative forgiveness is 
you know, the way a, a counter is forgiving, if you drop a glass on it and it bounces instead of shattering. I thought, oh, I really like that. So I think the benefit of self-forgiveness, I mean, whether it's preservative or not, but there is this preservative benefit, I think, to all self-forgiveness that it it could prep your brain to be better at handling the next intrusive memory. And I know I keep coming back to memory, but the day I realized that the problem with <laughs> the problem with self-blame and self-reproach is that it's a function of memory and I can't control whether those recur or not. Then I was like, okay, we're gonna need to, we're gonna need to be better at handling the fact that memories are going to happen in the future, whether I like it or not, right? And maybe the benefit of self-forgiveness is that it, it preps your brain to be committed to handling the next memory better. Mm-hmm. So that you say, oh, here's that memory again. And I promised myself that I wouldn't beat myself up about this as fully as I used to. So uh, that's my that's my hoped for benefit. I can tell you that there is some evidence in psychology too that self-forgiveness does help you to take responsibility to make amends. So there are some psychologists who have said that self-forgiveness sort of gives us a more optimistic view of ourself that says, um, not only am I more than nothing, not only am I not hopeless, but hopeful, <laughs> but perhaps I could even you know, take responsibility for this and make amends to another. So I only mention this uh, fleetingly in the chapter on self-forgiveness, but, and others are, are way better experts on it than I am. But uh, I am kind of fascinated by some arguments that shame, real deep shame, sort of locks you up inside um, so that you feel like you can't move, like you can't even show your face to the world. But that's no way to go about making amends to anyone. You know, if, if you're locked up in your house feeling ashamed. You're not out there doing all you can. So I think I think I can see why the psychological evidence that self-forgiveness might enable you to take responsibility could really be a, a hopeful, optimistic way of turning toward the future, saying maybe I can do something. Maybe I'm capable. At least that's my hope. I, I wanna I want to talk about something that I found very fascinating when I was reading your your chapter, and it really resonated with me on a, on a very much emotional level, and it has to do with moral remainders. It has to do with with regret. And one of the things that I kind of learned from you is that even when you engage in self-forgiveness, is not to suggest or not to say that the intrusive, like kind of the intrusive memories won't come. And I just wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit more, because people might think, you know, I thought I forgave myself, but I still feel this particular way, or I still think or, or, or um, have this particular thought or this particular memory. And so I, I just wonder if you can talk a little bit more about how they can be compatible. But I also uh, wonder if you can talk a little bit more about how to live with moral remainders. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I I mean, my <laughs> my short answer is, well, good luck. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, man, there's you're saying such a mouthful. I want to say so many things. Please, please. Edit out, edit, edit out my saying I want to say so many things. Uh, I love the concept of moral remainders. I loved it when I first came across it in Bernard Williams, who's not really talking about emotions. It's, it's Claudia Card who takes up Bernard Williams on moral remainders and says, I see emotions themselves as also remainders. And when she wrote that, I was like, yes, 
Hell yes, yes. Moral emotions are also remainders, uh, by which we simply mean if you've if you've done something wrong, if you've, if you've wronged someone, including yourself in some way, you could try to sort of sort of fix that wrong by discharging the obligation, right? By saying, look, I broke your blender, but I'll make it up to you. I'll buy you a new blender. And you could see that as the kind of moral wrong that leaves no remainders. You broke it, you paid for it. Maybe they like the new blender even better. There's no moral remainders, <laughs> not of the um, moral leftover variety, like I couldn't pay back everything, or the emotional variety if they're really happy with the results, right? And so moral remainders, the emotional sense, can include not just not being able to fix what you broke, but they can include even those feelings like regret. And when Claudia Card said, I see the emotions themselves as also remainders, I was like, right, yes. And this is where self-forgiveness comes in, right? It says, I'm not going to be able to undo this, and I'm not going to be able to get rid of all my feelings about being unable to undo this. And even if I think I've gotten rid of all of them, I won't know that I won't feel them again in the future because right, the future right. is unpredictable. Oh, it's so hard. So I think we are, to an extent, inevitably stuck with the possibility of moral remainders, if that includes things like recursive mem re re intrusive recurrent memory. And if we're inevitably stuck with them, then self-forgiveness is going to be the way to manage that fact. The challenge is to live with that fact. And so self-forgiveness is going to be the voluntary thing we do about having such uncontrolled, involuntary bodies. Hooray. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited about moral remainders. The older I get and the more I look around and think about moral remainders, the more I think it explains a lot of what's wrong in our personal, moral, and even our social and political and national lives. Like I think almost all of our social and political problems are just big sets of moral remainders, right? That's a problem. Because if I'm right, then it means the problems don't ever really completely go away. All you end up with is management of the fact that we have these remainders and maybe we always will. I mean, and that, that, that's, that's one of the things that I find, I find fascinating about your work in general. Um, Why, thank you. I mean, your, your work on perpetual struggle, for example. I mean, it You should really, call me every day. <laughs> <laughs> it really, like, as much as we like to think that we could live in a utopian society or that <laughs> reconciliation truly means that everything goes back to the way that it was, I mean, it really just brings us to the reality that at the end of the day, even if we try to make amends, um, even if we forgive ourselves, even if we fight for justice, there may be some stuff there left over, or there may be some stuff that we have to face in the future. Um, and I just think that that presentation, I mean, some people may be sad by that, but I think, I think it really points to reality. <laughs> yeah. And, and relationships, and, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and tending to the fragility and the mentioned aftermath, the aftermath of just being fragile creatures that are acting and creating stuff. And the task, the moral task is not to create perfect stuff, but to live with the imperfect stuff that we've already made. I mean, to me, that's, that's illuminating, but it's also liberating at the same time. Yeah. It's liberating because it means if we, because it means if we have the negative feelings in the future, if we feel 
have those days where we feel like we still hold grudges. It doesn't mean it's hopeless. That's kind of great news, right? Of course we have grudges. And of course we have days where we're like, you know, when I was feeling happy, I thought the bad things don't matter anymore. (laughs) Today I'm feeling unhappy and they matter more. (laughs) And it's okay. It doesn't mean this relationship is over. Um, And it's even more of a relief when I think about it in big terms. Like when I think about it on broad scales, like being an American and being a Canadian, both of which I am, I'm a dual citizen now. And I don't think these are relationships I can easily get rid of. I could if I really, really tried, but I don't really want to either. They, they are part of who I am. But being an American with other Americans, that's a, hmm, <laughs> that's, that's quite a set of relationships I've got there with people um, I just want to knock their heads together. And is it hopeless? I'm happy to say the good news of Moral Remainders is no, the fact that you're going to be inevitably angry at each other again and say, and another thing, <laughs> I still haven't forgiven that stuff from 50 years ago, right. uh, it doesn't mean that you can't do things like forgiveness and reconciliation. It just means you have to work with each other on skills at living with the past, the present, and the future better. You started a peer review open access journal eight years ago with some other brilliant, kind, wonderful people. I did. And I I wonder what you think about the current state of academic journals and philosophy. And in the last podcast, um, I had you talk about why you started the journal. And and this is a very different question. I mean, after it's been almost a decade, I wonder what you think about the current state of academic journals and philosophy. And and also, what do you think about about the future? Those are fair questions and tough questions. Let me see if I can give a succinct answer. Yeah, I really worry about the state of academic journals because, you know, in a word, I think they're stressed. I think they are stressed in ways they weren't even 15, 20 years ago. I think that stress is partly because so much of the post-secondary sector uh, at least in the U.S. and Canada and the sectors, uh, you know, in the industries I'm familiar with. So much of it has become precarious labor that it has created even more pressure on graduate students and the precariously employed to publish even more, to earn what few jobs with stability and guarantees of future employment there are. So the more stresses upon us in the field to expand precarious labor and reduce tenured people, the more pressures there are on journals as people think peer-reviewed journal articles are what is valued and they're not wrong. They're right, unfortunately. And so I must have more of them. And here I think they're probably wrong, right? There's a number beyond which it doesn't help anybody's case, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. What's, what's that uh, number? <laughs> not just oh, just go, yeah, and and that number, right? given all the search committees I've sat on is you know, single digits. If once you're going into double digits, like how many double digits do you need before a philosophy department says it's in the double digits? Interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I worry. I worry about that a lot. And there are further stresses because the post-secondary sector has moved to precarious labor, because more than half of all philosophy instructors are precariously employed in the US and Canada, as far as I can tell. It means that 
journals are relying on who to do the refereeing and the editing. Preferably people who aren't doing um, service to journals for free, which means not the precariously employed, so likely the the tenured. But there's fewer of the tenured, so they're doing uh, more refereeing and editing than they used to do. Uh, And what a lot of us are doing is saying, I'm sorry, I'm hitting my limits on how much I can do, even though I try to do more every year. But, you know, there's going to be a year where I say I can't I can't improve over last year's numbers of refereeing and editing. Uh, You know, there's a max in my hours. So I think the stresses are innumerable. I think the future is concerning. And my hope is it's a dim hope because it would take so much political will on the part of so many people. My hope is that we as a profession get together and change the way we do things and say peer-reviewed journal articles simply are not the single most important thing in hiring, in promotion, and in being considered a good philosopher. The kind of public philosophy you're doing here on the podcast, should it should matter. And it is, in fact, the thing that makes us more intelligible to people outside of philosophy and outside of the academy. I would like to see a variety of things count. And I am sad that we seem to have become become people who wield the implements of our own torture and continue to uphold peer-reviewed journal articles as the thing that matters most. What inspires you? Well, not peer-reviewed journal. I kid, I kid. <laughs> I, I kid. Although um, I will admit that, uh, like a lot of people, the more peer-reviewed journal articles they are, you know, the less inspired I am to read them all. <laughs> But what does inspire me? Philosophy inspires me, especially when it's philosophy that touches on real world issues that actually makes me think this could physically actually help people. (laughs) What inspires me is, is seeing people draw on extremely human and beautiful skills in ways that move other people to understand something better, think about the world differently notice beauty, feel like their day is better. Uh, What inspires me is what we can do with each other. It's why uh, I was thinking so much about AI recently, because so many professors are concerned about chatbot. And I was thinking about a poll that asked, uh, do you want to watch a TV show? Would you pay for a streaming service whose TV shows were all generated by AI? And I thought, no, I have no interest in seeing what AI can do. I, I really like art for what humans do mm-hmm. and manage to put in front of me. And I find myself thinking, that's it, right? Uh, what inspires me is big and little human achievements to make me notice a song, to make me uh, think about how to solve a public policy problem. Ah, I love people except when I can't stand them. <laughs> So you mentioned that you have, you know, dual citizenship of Canada, America. Um, Canada doesn't get a lot of love from 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 America. And so I, I wonder what is your favorite thing about about living in Canada? And where should a person go if they were to visit? And please do not mention Toronto, Vancouver or Montreal. So see that, folks, she ruled out my three favorite places. Because <laughs> those are the three places that Americans would go. And I'm, I'm a city gal. I love, I love those cities. Uh, I could put in a plug for Ottawa, which is underappreciated and has just amazing resources in a physically beautiful location. But I will not stop at Ottawa. I'll get out of the city. 
and say that uh, I think Lake Louise in the province of Alberta is one of the single most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And I say this as someone who uh, is born and raised in Chicago. I do not camp. I do not do the outdoors. <laughs> I, am, I am not cut out for nature. Except it turns out I'm wrong. I am totally cut out for nature. And, and I am converted by the experience of going to places like Lake Louise and being in and with these beautiful places that are always threatened by, well, the actions of tourists like me, right? By the very predations of the human beings looking at it. But I can't help recommending, since we can't be pure and perfect, we're going to have effects upon the world anyway. Going somewhere like Lake Louise in Alberta and really physically being present and deeply appreciating, this is worth preserving. And when I'm not here, I can think about preserving it for good moral reasons. But it's not the same as feeling it and <laughs> feeling how mm. beautiful that that water of a blue I can't even describe. You have to see it for yourself. The, the Canadian Rockies, uh, walking up from Lake Louise into the mountains and feeling like you're standing on the moon. It's, it's like nothing else on earth. You have to go there, people. Also, I didn't know Canada didn't get a lot of love from Americans. What are all these people doing traveling to these cities if they don't love it? Go away, well, you know, I said, love it. I said, I said a lot of love. Now, love is one thing. <laughs> But a lot of love is a is a is a, is another. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for taking your time out to have this this conversation. I really I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Maisha. Always a pleasure. Let's do this again <laughs> and again and again and again. That would be that would be fun. Thanks so much. Yes, it would. Thank you, Maisha. For more access to the Unmute podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.